Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is a recording of a conversation I had with Danny Wolfers as part of this year's RA conference program at Deckmantle Festival. The Dutch artist is best known for making houses Lego Velt, but the project has managed to encompass much more than music. He's managed to become synonymous with esoteric synthesizers, a few of which he picked out and explained during the interview. He's also something of an underrated artist, so we had him describe some of the methods and thinking behind his bizarrely imaginative album covers. Then there's the visibility he's given to cyberzines and pre-internet subcultures in general. I asked him about some of the influences on his own excellent Shadow Wolf scene and heard about its most recent issue, which was made by Wolfers with a class of students during a workshop he gave on the topic last year. Overall, is a chance to hear him shed a light on the constellation of interests that have shaped an artist who's much more influential than appearances may indicate. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Legovelt is up next. things but I feel personally that one of your talents which is maybe a little bit under appreciated in my opinion is the artwork you've been doing for your label Nightwind Records it's all really vivid stuff which gets the imagination going and um, you know some of it looks like it's made by software some of it looks like it's pencil some of it looks like it's paint and stuff and I just want to start with one example which is the uh, the Rising Sun Systems record you got to check it out it's like Igor Stravinsky, I think, this Russian composer in a landscape in front of a snow-capped mountain with pastries of some description. Croissants. Yeah, uh, that's the pastry. And uh, it's Mount Fuji on the background, yeah. Yeah, as I said, the the texture of it is extremely vivid. I was just wondering if you could tell us how you made that specific artwork. Uh, Well, that artwork was just made in in Photoshop. I first drew the the uh, the pictures like the the black and white uh, pictures with a a fine liner, and then I scanned it and colored it in in Photoshop. So it's not really exciting uh, stuff. But um, actually, uh, last week or two days ago, I actually repainted the uh, that picture because that release is going to be reissued on vinyl. 
of course, uh, four years ago when I made that release, I saved it like in the lowest quality possible. So it was not uh, uh, possible to use that for a, a LP cover. So then I just uh, used watercolors again to, to paint it and, and made it a little bit better and with some more depth in it. Dare I ask where images like these come from? Do you have a, the idea for floating croissants around Stravinsky before you start drawing or is it you just start drawing something and then it appears while you're doing it? Uh, no, it, 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 it is very influenced by the music. So the music comes first, the, the album is created basically and then also the title and stuff and, and maybe the whole concept. But yeah, this album doesn't really have a, a concept. It's it's uh, a lot of different uh, uh, characters uh, of characteristics and emotions or, or whatever put together. Um, yeah, then I just think, well, it, it needs some artwork, and uh, well, what the the track title of one of the tracks is, of course, uh, "Croissants" with Stravinsky or something. I don't even know. And yeah, so then I just uh, 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 make that, you know. And so, yeah, so yeah, but but sometimes it's the other way around. Then I I paint something, uh, just just random, like, and then I think, well, th this would make a really good uh, album cover, and then I'm just make a release around that so can you give an example of one of those where it's gone the other way around like that uh let's see i don't think i j i didn't release an example of that yet for uh, uh on my label uh, nightwind records something is going to be probably released uh next year and it's going to be called the golden age of flying boats about the uh, old uh, pan m 1930s uh, flying boats and that kind of yeah um uh, interbellum atmosphere and I, I got a lot more paintings that could be releases but um, of course I can make the music like in in I don't know three days probably for an album but <coughs> I, I shouldn't uh, also uh, not uh, how do you call it uh, extort that or uh, squeeze it out too much you know I gotta be a, a little bit uh, timid with releasing stuff else the audience will get uh, tired maybe you know how long have you been drawing and painting for is this something you've been doing since a childhood or well i i actually studied animation uh and so at a at an art school or a sort of art school um so I'm, I'm trained to 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 draw and stuff like that so and when i was a kid i really liked to draw and um, I always wanted to be like a, a, a how do you call it, like a, a comic uh, maker, a, a graphic novelist, but it didn't exist that term yet when I was young. But but then I got a computer when I was young, and yeah, I stopped drawing, and then I, I got interested in uh, electronic music. So that, that, this uh, hobby uh, was put in the in the fridge, so to speak. But um, yeah, it, it it came back the like four years ago. I just started uh, drawing again, and, and I had so I have so much fun drawing. I'm w when I draw, I, I I'm really laughing out loud and stuff. It's a uh, it's a uh, a bit weird, but uh, yeah. What's the thing? You, you can you can sense the joy in the images. Uh, like there's the um the electronic music from the Faroe Islands, mm -hmm. 1993, where it's a a dolphin or a shark yeah um, it, it, it's the dolphins that get killed on that island uh, every year you know that he's got a big grin and he's wearing sunglasses and holding a synthesizer he looks like he's having a great time <laughs> yeah it, 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 it's kind of like a fake tourist advertisement for the island but with with some yeah uh, maybe some kind of animal rights uh, uh, how do you call it uh, idea behind it 
to question the Faroe Islands, but also not, I don't know. Yeah. Did you ever manage to make it there? Because I know in the, in no. the, in the notes, it said um, you, you felt some kind of gravitational pull to the place. Yeah, but uh, so far I haven't been there uh, yet. It, it, it's also quite difficult to to reach. I think you have to go to Norway first, and I, I don't. There's there's not really much to do there. I think, and uh, with, with that whole uh, animal rights thing, I'm always afraid if I go there, they, they will think I'm an animal rights activist, and then I get kicked off the island or something. You know. The Speaking of um, animal rights, you made a record for a real film. A film about a beast called the skunk ape yeah the, also the, known as the swamp cabbage man and other names i'm sure the audience might not know about the skunk ape can you maybe fill them in the, the skunk ape is the florida version of bigfoot I, I guess most people are familiar with bigfoot it's a cryptozoological uh, creature that people think exists but it has never been proven and i i i I think it doesn't exist though because else it would have been uh, found already but maybe it it existed like one time you know and um yeah this whole world from cryptozoological uh people or that scene is is very interesting because these people really research and really believe it exists and some people think they have seen it and I, I, I always am very fascinated uh, fascinated with this thing you know that people believe in something um, yeah it's basically like fantasy you know and um, this uh, documentary was made by uh, Brett uh, Abrahams and uh, yeah it's about the, the the Florida version of it that roams around in the in the swamps there and uh, he interviews some very uh, strange people that uh, yeah that, that try to capture it and stuff and i was asked to do the soundtrack for that and, and of course i think that was a, a good match i think uh, so yeah i did that and um, i released it on a cassette on uh, my nightwind records label so yeah there's another really interesting record on nightwind i won't disrespect the audience by trying to pronounce the dutch shuttle but it apparently translates to rustlings from Somberville. And you do this with um, Jimmy Helenga. Yeah, he's here too. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's an uh, ec- expert in uh, medieval uh, instruments, hurdy-gurdy and stuff like that. And also in the um, uh, harmonium, which is not medieval, but uh, he can play that very well. That, that release uh, started when I bought a harmonium from the late 19th century. And a harmonium is, a, is kind of like an air organ. And uh, they're beautiful uh, instruments, like with lots of wood carving and, and huge, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like an uh, antique closet with mirrors in it and little doors where you can, uh, little closets where you can put stuff in. And I saw it in the local thrift store and it was 70 euros. So I, I bought it immediately and it, it worked perfectly. Yeah, I, I thought, well, it, it, maybe it's cool to do a, do something with it. And uh, I involved Jimmy with it to to make a, a, a release with that. And um, it was kind of based uh, by the very melancholical darkness uh, in our local uh, seaside town. And um, the harmonium is also a very nautical instrument because uh, for some reason it, it sounds like a, a, a wooden ship that's creaking if you play it because there's so much wood it, it really sounds like, like you're on an old wooden ship so yeah we made that album and um, it was actually uh, made for the concert center which, which is a local uh, classical music station 
on the radio and they uh, how do you call it they um they said yeah you you, you want to make this and then we said yeah sure uh, there, there's a real fancy word for that commission yeah that's it yeah i always like to use that word because you know like we're commissioned by classical music uh, radio station that's something your parents would like you know and so they think oh See, he's a he's a real musician. They think then, or something. But it, it was a really fun uh, project, and uh, yeah, we combined it with a, um, a mixtur tratonium, which is a very strange uh, German instrument from the yeah, invented in the 1930s by Oscar Sala, and um, I, I built like a copy of that using the uh, Dupfer, uh, uh, which is a German brand, and uh, they're the only ones I think that actually make a cheap version of it because you can buy a real mixture tritonium uh, for a lot of money but it's a very interesting um, it, it's basically one of the first synthesizers kind of made in uh, in Germany and it, y you can play it uh, with like two uh, metal uh, wires because yeah. I want to ask about this because the Dupfer one he said he replaced it with like a something more like a ribbon controller yeah, <coughs> with a normal ribbon controller yeah because yeah. the other one's like so unreliable or something like that well I don't know but it's very expensive then you already pay 4,000 euros for just a controller or something and then you have to pay 10,000 euros for uh, for the synthesizer itself so yeah the, the, the Dupfer one is a lot cheaper yeah so what do you think gives the instrument its character? I know it has a lot of form and filters in it and things like this, but is it is it mainly the interface, this ribbon controller style thing? Yeah, beca because you can, fr uh, w with the wire controller or the ribbon controller, you can free float between normal notes, you know? It, it's not like a, uh, like a piano keyboard or whatever, but you can play normal notes because on the original there's like a, a metal kind of spring or metal pieces that that are the notes but in between you can do like all kinds of weird stuff and uh, the the most uh, interesting thing of the mixture tritonium is uh, that you can have a very harmonic sounds uh, basically kind of I can kind of compare it to chord memory on a modern synthesizer like if you uh, press one note you can have a, a, a whole a spectrum of different notes at the same time and then play a melody with that which gives a very uh, surreal um, atmosphere and uh, the the mixture tritonium was very much used in early film soundtracks you know and um, like in the 1950s and 60s like well, the birds is yeah, the, most the birds is the most uh, famous example yeah uh, I don't think it's not even so much the music in the birds but the sound effects so they're weird like you know and it's, it's very psychedelic yeah and it, it is very ethereal uh, sound that immediately sounds very old for some reason it's, it's if you have a modern synthesizer there's no way you can get that sound out of it and also because it's because of the spr spring reverb that's in there so then it automatically sounds uh, old and from a different era or something yeah have you ever had any ideas for designing your own synthesizer uh, well, well I, I, I kind of uh, did that like last month with a with uh, Star Shepherd, but uh, you cannot buy it. it it's just uh, basically, uh, what's it called? Like uh, when you. Um, it's a one off piece. Yeah, it, it's made out of old guitar pedals and an old Casio 403 keyboard, and I just uh, hacked it or circuit bended it a little bit and then uh, put it in a nice uh, 
or it's not nice looking it looks very uh <laughs> makeshift and <clears throat> horrible but uh yeah so I, I guess that's an urge to make something yourself i had but of course i have no knowledge to really make like an analog synth or anything so i just uh, approach it with a more do-it-yourself uh, punk attitude without much knowledge and then yeah like like circuit bending you know and uh, i finished it that that's already something that i'm i'm kind of well, proud but like you know it's not normally when i would start something like that i would just throw it in the corner after like a few days because this time it's it's finished yeah I mean, speaking of which, do you feel that there's um, these big breakthroughs like FM synthesis or granular synthesis are all like decades old at this point? Do you have any sense of where like a frontier might be for something new or something that would interest you? You know, uh, I, I'm very much interested in like um, late 80s and early 90s uh, digital synthesizers that don't really use per se uh, an, an interesting uh, synthesis form but they're just called rumplers you know and uh, the the magic of those machines is like they, they put like waveforms in it like digital waveforms that they just recorded you know like uh, and then sometimes they're really weird for example you have the Yamaha uh, TG33 and they put so many weird samples in that, like of, of, of like rainforest sounds or, or somebody holding a metal uh, plate and uh, stuff like that. And yeah, you can combine all these sounds a bit and pitch them up. And then you, you can also, yeah, you, you can, I think, uh, can get much more interesting sounds for me than uh, as an analog synth. Because of course I've, I've been using analog synths since the 90s. So for me, it's it's kind of a, a boring uh, a predictable sound and of course I, I use analog synths uh, a lot still but um, I, I don't you know the, 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 for me this whole thing oh it's analog then it's cool of course I understand it because it, it's it's the same as like uh, guitarists with like a guitar like uh, yeah that's a uh, rock and roll or something and for some reason in electronic music having an analog synth is cool but why is that i don't know why, why do people find analog synths so because you can I, i'm pretty sure it's just because you have to filter knob and you can just go fi filter you know go like wow 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 people just need to filter on their dx7 and then they'd be laughing you know yeah yeah and then it would be like five thousand euros nowadays you know but I, oh yeah I'm, I'm also convinced a lot of people just only know the, what the filter knob does you know and of course a filter's cool, but there's so much more, you know, in, in sound design and stuff, you know. Th th these things exist, you know, and, in, and it's the same with gu guitars, you know. Yeah, we, we just gotta do it with that, you know, and th there will be people that will use it in a completely other way we, we haven't experienced yet, you know, and it's maybe already happening, you know. It's You see that, because there's always new music coming out, and then you think, wow, this is, um, does it like this, or, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Speaking of which, um, I think it was in a sound on sound issue recently. Novelist said he was um, using your sample packs, and I forget which track he was talking about. I was interested with the with the sample pack thing because you know, <laughs> sample packs are like a a big industry. You do them yourself and give them away for free. It's time consuming. Like, why why do you do that? There are probably many reasons for that. First of all, it's really fun to make these sample kits. 
because uh, you can just sit behind a, a keyboard synthesizer or whatever and just go all wild and and it's very adventurous you you, you design new sounds and stuff and then you just record like a, like half an hour of you you know just pushing all the buttons and playing weird chords or mm, sweeping filters and wha whatever and um, then you cut them up and then you give them little names and uh, so uh, that's really fun to do and, and another uh, thing basically what maybe I started with it is, is so I had some content on my website it's a very uh, uh, boring thing, but um, uh, also maybe because it's like a kind of uh, musical, uh, 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 how do you call it, progeny, is that a word? Like you make the sounds and other people use it, so you kind of spread like your, your, yeah, your, your own thing, so a novelist uses these sounds, you know, they're this, this yeah, that, that that's really cool, you know. Then and, and and I I don't think you can make a lot of money with sample kits too. You know, there's people trying, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I know. I always get like uh, uh, emails from sample pack companies, like like yeah, Jesus man, come on. It, it, it's much more fun to just give them uh, for free. And uh, also, when when I was a kid and I started on my uh, Commodore Amiga with Octamed, uh, the tr uh, music program. You know, samples were so cool, you know, and it's, it was kind of difficult to, y you could of course sample uh, stuff from like uh, your own vinyl, but of course I didn't have much vinyl. And then uh, I and back then you, you would buy a sample CD or something from, from England and uh, yeah, you had to write a check or something, or my mom would do that, and I give my mom some money, and then like two months later, you got the sample CD, and, and uh, <coughs> yeah, so I I think it's 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 something you can give to the to the you know to 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 artists to inspire them or something, and that's also a really cool thing to do, you know. I don't know if this is reading too much into it, but it sort of reminded me of um, early BBS era sort of like you know everyone's just giving their software to each other there's kind of like pre-commodified yeah, idea like of um, pu public domain yeah yeah, yeah definitely um yeah i'm i'm, I'm not like a <coughs> an anti-capitalist or anything but uh, i mean some some you know maybe i will release a sample pack that's gonna cost money maybe in the future but then you know just maybe it's all uh something that to get people addicted to it and then <laughs> like next year we'll ask money for it but no um but uh yeah definitely uh, 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 it, it it also stems from this whole do-it-yourself uh kind of yeah, yeah like punk style attitude to uh yeah to to just uh, do it like that you know yeah this this whole um bbs thing I've said BBS twice without saying what the acronym stands for. Could you give could you give us just a very um, brief rundown of um well not a brief rundown as long as you want but you yeah, know for I, us who don't know about it and I try to be brief uh, a BBS is a, a bulletin board system and basically that was uh, a, a computer network before the internet before the internet existed you could uh, use a modem there was a thing you attached to your phone. Uh, with your uh, crappy uh, 80s computer like Commodore 64 or an, uh, uh, Commodore Amiga and also PC or Atari ST and then um, uh, you could uh, deal up a, 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 yeah, a bulletin board system which was basically somebody's computer that had a little menu like welcome to my uh, and then they had they gave it weird names you know uh, I don't know like uh, 
know, whatever. And then you had a menu, and then you could select like uh, read text files or something, or uh, read uh, download software, or send a message, or chat with uh, uh, other other person. And this was all like on a yeah on a black screen with only characters, you know, like uh, ASCII characters. And um, these BBSs would be uh, people uh, run it uh, with a subject uh, like th their hobbies or something, you know, like like every hobby could have a BBS. And of course, there were lots of electronic music uh, BBSs. So if, if we're talking about the early 90s now. And of course, as, as, uh, to do that as a kid. Uh, like I don't know, like being a uh, fourteen, sixteen, it was very exciting because not many people were doing that, and it was it felt so cutting edge on, on technology, and you were it, it it really felt like a yeah like a cyberpunk, you know, and like a hacking and stuff like that, and um, you would call like yeah you you would. Uh, enter the number and on the computer terminal program and then it would go like bleep 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 and then try to you would hear the sounds of the the phone going over and then it would connect and then you would see the uh yeah the menu coming up and then you think oh yeah it was uh, so exciting and then some of these electronic music uh, bbs's would have like articles about uh, underground resistance or articles uh, of course these these people were not real journalists so it, it was written in a real um, amateuristic way or sometimes it were not even articles it were just like a uh, like the releases underground resistance had and that was so exciting to read for some reason like like in a in a text file and I hadn't heard these releases you know and I just looked at the names and I said, wow, this is so cool. And then I, I went to the record store in The Hague and then I thought, oh yeah, Underground Resistance, they, they would have it. And then I would just buy them without even listening, you know. And then, yeah. So uh, I, I guess that, uh, yeah, that really helped me, um, uh, especially in the beginning days, uh, to, to, uh, yeah, to know a little bit about uh, stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Were you able to connect with America over BBS over at that time? Yeah, d definitely. That's uh, maybe not so much in the beginning, but for example, uh, the artist Stink Works from uh, Down Low Records and uh, stuff like that. And uh, so, the, but then it was not like directly. I think, uh, but I think there there was some communication. And then we uh, also also a real cool thing about this BBS culture was yeah, uh, you would meet random people that were into electronic music. Uh, online and but uh, we would like um, exchange uh, cassette tapes and like uh, you know like make mixtapes like uh, with uh, stuff you you had and and stuff and uh, yeah so we would send that also transatlantic and yeah so yeah that was of course also very exciting as a yeah did you rack up any big phone bills then yeah my mother was always very angry <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really had to use the the phone for that, but uh, you didn't necessarily had to call America because the the system was that you would call a local BBS and then uh, the messages would be transferred to the local BBS. So uh, yeah, so, yeah. Did you have a sense that there were people in your vicinity who were onto the same sort of thing, or was it very much like connecting with people elsewhere? Yeah, de de definitely not. Because uh, at at my uh, uh, how do you call it high school, it it was like you know these these people were like uh, when you 
I got all excited. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like a house music or techno music producer. And they would go like, oh, this is stupid, you know? And I thought, okay, well, uh, <clears throat> and there were maybe like one one or two two people. Like we had a little like uh, nerds gang or something, you know? And then they would be like into Star Trek. And I, I liked it too. But they really had no idea what I was doing with electronic music. So I, did, I, I was very alone in that. At my school, there was not, not really uh, people that were into that. Yeah. But yeah, did these people ended up as being like an um, office worker or something nowadays. Yeah, you've had the last laugh. You know? Yeah, probably. I, I hope so. Yeah. Back in 2013, I just had this idea to to maybe it would be fun to to have this vibe of the old bulletin board systems in in this modern uh, internet age. So I just thought, well, I'm I'm gonna do like a, a cyber zine, like a, a or a zine. You call it zine, like. yeah. Um, and everybody knows what zines are, I guess, right? Like uh, self-published, um, yeah, little magazines and uh, with, with like freaky information in it. And uh, back in the BBS days, you had like cyber zines, like um, yeah, electronic um, magazines written purely in text. And then the, the graphics would also be in text. The pictures explaining something would be like in really crappy uh, yeah, text uh, characters. And so, yeah, in 2014, I decided to, to do that uh, and put it on my website. Yeah, and uh, for that, I use a very obscure uh, uh, browser called SeaMonkey, which is an open source uh, 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 browser which has a built in uh, web designer and uh called composer and uh, with that i can really uh easily uh make the <coughs> yeah make the cyber sign and uh, choose the colors and draw and so it's not really drawing you type you know but yeah yeah so and then, then i put it online and then I, I hadn't i hadn't i thought nobody's gonna care about this this is so um uh, niche but then uh, people really liked it and then I thought okay that's cool I'm, I'm gonna make another one you know so now, now it's like ev every year at Christmas I, I make the, the cyber sign or a cyber zine or whatever yeah I, I, the funny thing is that uh, I interviewed lots of interesting uh, people that were influential to me especially for this uh, for this thing which uh, you know I in interviewed uh, Iasos the the new age guy and uh, I interviewed Man Parish and stuff like that you know so it's uh, and then, yeah then you explain yeah this is for the thing uh, for the for cyber sign I'm gonna interview you and they said no that's cool you know yeah so uh, were there any cyber zines from the past which were particularly like influential on the style or the content that you have in your own one well yeah there there have been many like in the early 90s but uh that um, they were always quite amateuristic or like really like kind of minimal so um yeah i'm i'm probably made it a, a little bit more readable or um, acceptable for people you know i guess you still got to be a little bit of a freak to really read everything but yeah some great recipes in there oh yeah that was the the uh, last uh, issue but that issue was made during a, a workshop i did in rotterdam at a uh, uh, warm 
and they asked me to do a, a one afternoon workshop where I um, or where we made a new uh, issue with like 20 uh, participants that were there and yeah like what sort of demographic of person was going to this were they all like old people your age or were they any young people or no they, they, they were uh, I, I was surprised of course they were, they were very uh, freaky people kind of like not uh, yeah not uh, no jocks or bros but um they were uh yeah no uh, differed quite much in 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 the in the age spectrum i think the oldest people or uh, oldest person maybe was like in his 60s and also very young people like yeah so everything in between from all all, all different walks of life yeah and so what was the content of the seminar like what were you teaching well, these uh, people basically we made a new uh, issue uh, together so I, I first introduced them a little bit about the history of the bulletin board systems and then I showed them uh, pictures on a beamer you know how, how these things looked and uh, and then said uh, yeah now we're gonna make a new issue and I teach them a little bit how to make a ASCII art you know and, um, and uh, the, yeah they could download the sea monkey program and then they started and, and it, it, yeah I, w I was very uh, um, proud of these people because uh, we we got a new issue in a, in a yeah in one afternoon yeah. I don't, I'm not sure what the um the nature of this um this worm place that you did this at, but I'm curious as to as to find out whether is there any like institutional support for you know like recording or documenting this culture because the people who are part of it you know it had like a really profound effect on their life and um you know a lot of like great art came out of it as well but it's um you know it hasn't had a maybe a trendy reevaluation where it's all turning up in art galleries and stuff like that do you think there's any kind of seeds of a um it being reassessed or anything like that that's funny because the the there was this organization from uh, miami it's called the dill uh, zine library and uh they actually uh made a printed version of uh, I think the second uh, Shadow Wolf issue and they had it in their gallery and they even brought it to the uh, they showed it in the the, the what is it the, the Mo MoCA in Los Angeles so uh, they, they showed a copy of that there they had that in uh, somewhere there uh, so yeah I, I guess there was a little bit of interest uh, so far but um, yeah, maybe maybe in the future, you know, I'm going to make uh, millions uh, selling uh, an ASCII art, you know, at, in a museum. That would be cool. Yeah. I was just wondering what, what year you got your first computer and what type of computer was it? Because I know people were very, um, they almost thought about their computer as a sporting team or something. Like the Commodore people would be like, Atari's a trash and the, the Tandy was referred to as the Trash 80 and stuff like that. Were you, were you um like a a flag flyer for any particular type of computer or anything well in in holland basically the the only computer back then was the commodore 64 and or at least you know it is uh, it's also but that was also my first computer i think in 1989 and then uh, yeah my parents saved up uh, a lot of the money and then i got my first computer commodore 64 and, yeah, and that changed my life you know what what's what were its capabilities back then? What were you using it for? Well, just to play games as a kid, you know. But uh, also, of course, the thing with the Commodore sixty four is that you can program it because as soon as you turn it on, it says ready, 
and you can program in basic so as a kid uh, uh, back then ki- uh, or kids started programming also you know and, uh, um, it was really easy to learn and, and it, it was a very open computer to to learn about yeah about how to program and uh, yeah i don't think that's today with computers you don't really have that but of course you have other software you can use so maybe it's better these days but then yeah uh, you, you could just make a game by yourself in in, in, in um, you know in your bedroom you know yeah so it's uh, a very inspiring uh, machine but a uh, music um, uh, of course the commodore 64 had the the sit chip but it's difficult to program the the real music uh, thing came with the commodore amiga which i had in the uh, early 90s and uh, that opened so many doors for almost uh, yeah a lot of musicians started with the Commodore Amiga I guess it's um, like also music uh, styles like jungle drum and bass and uh, hubber and stuff it was a very important machine for those uh, music styles how did it compare to the uh, to the Atari? Was there like vying for su- supremacy one or the other? Well, the, the thing with the Atari was because the Atari was always seen as a as a music machine because it had MIDI. Because when you had an Atari, you still needed a synthesizer uh, to connect it or a drum machine. You, you ca- it, it was a computer made to run a sequences uh, studio, but with the Amiga, you didn't yeah you didn't need much else. Only the Amiga and a little sampler. Uh, a cartridge you put in the back and then you could make tracks you know and yeah a, a lot of er, early 90s techno house is just like only the amiga you know and it's it's very interesting it, it's kind of um uh what's the word for that like uh yeah re- 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 nice or uh, made it equal for people to use there was no barrier to or they didn't have to spend a lot of money to buy expensive synthesizers and stuff you know, all, all you needed was an amiga and you could make a house record you know Thank you. 